0: Reflections on Dante's Paradiso, by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 4. In Canto 16 of the Inferno, Dante had a crisis of will. He found out that you cannot achieve salvation by an act of self-will. He had to take the cord off and throw it away. In Canto 16 of the Purgatorio, another crisis of will, and he got a lecture from Marco Lombardo on the nature of free will and the, and the importance of making a choice. In Canto 16 of the Paradiso, there is another complication having to do with the will, and that is that Dante learns that freedom is indistinguishable from a kind of imperative, that there is something that has been working in his bloodline, and he is, he is fulfilling a role that has been there before him in his ancestral bloodline. And it is in conjunction with this interview with his ancestral father that he rekindles this deeper will. Uh, it is that last rejuvenation of the will in the middle of the Paradiso, as in the other canticus. And he discovers in his interview with Cachagua that his work is destined work, and that it has been percolating through his bloodline for a long time, and that it will continue. And so his he is informed of this other sense of destiny, a deeper sense of destiny. Cachagua warns him not to take this literally. That is to say, once you, once he feels this connection with the ancestral pulse. Uh, one temptation would be then to uh, s- spend a lot of time chasing around your genealogy to see if there was maybe really was somebody on the Mayflower. <laughs> and Cacho says, uh, Dante asks about. Uh, he says, "Tell me more." And Cacho says, "Of my fathers, be content with what you have heard of who they were and whence they came to Florence. Silence is far is a far more is far more fitting than any word. And th- the less said, the better." And then he goes on to say later, Families dwindle out. Even cities come at last to an end. All mankind's institutions of every sort have their own death. Though in what long endures, it is hidden from you, your own lives being short. So he says, Don't get too carried away with this sense of... Understand that there is some... It is not to be taken literally, nor is it to be taken ethereally. There is something to it. There is something to that bloodline connection. Most of us, I think, begin to get in touch, well, I shouldn't say that, many begin to get in touch with that other will that is deeper than the ego-arbitrary self-will when we sense that something is being worked through us which is older than we are. And the personification of that would be the ancestral voice. Dante is discovering that his life is authorized by discovering that he is not its author. And there's a little conundrum for you that uh, is important for us. I think it's important for us. Only by discovering that he is not its author can he come into contact with the fact that his life is authorized. Think for a moment of the endless little alchemical recipes in the modern world for for creating a synthetic substitute for this ancestral voice. We go back and get one more Ph.D. or we get some one more uh, promotion or one more. Accolade, or one more um, something that tells us that we're okay after all, that somehow we are authorized after all, or somehow we finally made it, or we're finally adult, or we're finally, you know, something. All of that, I think, can be seen as an attempt to do what Gante does in the in the fictional narrative when he has this encounter with his ancestral voice, which is what Aeneas does in in the Aeneid. He says in Canto 16, verse 16 and following to to Caccia You are my father, I started in reply. You give me confidence to speak out boldly. You so uplift me, I am more than I. He is authorized by discovering he is not the author of his life, that something is coming through him. And notice that the measure of it is in how he speaks. He has discovered, in hearing the ancestral voice, he has discovered a new voice in himself. Now it's interesting, and this is very uh, uh, subtle and implicit, but I take it to be interesting how this canto ends. Dante reconnects via Cacciaguida. With what we might call in psychological jargon the arch- his archetypal connection. He connects again with the, with the archetype of the father figure. What happens if we don't do that? What happens if the crisis of will sets in? We begin to experience, we, we find ourselves more and more proof rock like. You see, and we don 't consult that ancestral we don't somehow, don't find an access to that ancestral voice. What happens? Carl Jung says we said people will not live a meaningless life and uh, that's a that's a statement which is which is alarming because there are a number of ways of getting in touch with the archetypes, and not all of them pretty, and one of them is one can regress to a kind of mass. Collective possession. And if there's no other way of getting in touch with the archetype, that is an option that's always available. It requires no effort on the part of the people involved. It's a collective epidemic. Let me, before we get to this passage at the end of the canto, two definitions of sin one we've talked about before and one we haven't talked about for a while. Uh, Mirce Eliade, who's a great. Uh, a professor of mythology and comparative religion and so on at the University of Chicago, died not too long ago. Mircea Eliade, in one of his books, defines sin as a life lived unconnected with the archetypes. Okay. Put that with Sebastian Moore's definition of sin, that is to say, seeing my life through other people's eyes. They're two sides of the same coin. If I have not that connection with the archetypes, I am stuck with the sociological uh economy as a way of trying to get in touch with who I am. And so I have to be playing that game to get a sense of my identity at the le- sociological level. And for more, of that's sin. And for Iliade, it is sin is not being in touch with the archetype. Two, two sides of the same coin. If I am not in touch with the archetypes and I'm stuck with that sociological level, I need the archetypes, I will, f- I will find a way, I will become part of a mass movement that will try to find them in that, in that sociological level. What Eric Neumann called the recollectivization of the human psyche. That is to say, I'll get swept up in mass movements that are archetypally energized. So what happens at the end of Canto 16 is that Dante refers to a little episode, which is that in the, in the pagan era, Florence was, the patron of Florence was the god of war, Mars. And in the Christian era, the patron of Florence was John the Baptist. And Dante alludes at the end of the canto to an event that had happened uh, some years before his time. He says, But it was fitting that to the broken stone that guards the bridge, Florence should offer a victim to mark the last day's peace she has ever known. What happened is that some Florentines went to the broken statue of Mars and offered a sacrifice to the god of war. Now take that as a symbol. I'm sure this is not an intentional thing by Dante, but take that as a symbol for what happens if one does not Consult the ancestral voice, or get in touch with the ancestral voice. We will get in touch with the archetypes one way or another. And the this latter way is tremendously dangerous. And I, I, I it's a little bit of a side to take that roundabout uh, journey to mention that, but I think it's, I think it's sobering. Canto, a uh, canto seventeen, the first four lines, like him who went to Clemene to learn if what he, ha- what he had heard was true, who makes fathers unwilling to yield to their sons at every turn. Such was I, and such was I taken to be by Beatrice and Cachaguida. The reference is to Phaethon. Phaethon was Apollo's son. Apollo drove the chariot of the, of the sun across the sky. And somebody said to Phaethon, hey, Phaethon, guess what? Apollo's really not your daddy. Ha, ha, ha. And, and so uh, Phaethon says, oh, no. And his mama said, well, go ask him. And he, would, he went and asked Apollo. And Apollo says, yes, you are. And he said, well, to prove it, let me give me my wish. And Apollo unwisely said yes. And he said, okay, I want to drive the chair of the sun. And it was disaster. Now, how are we to regard this? Dante makes that connection with his interview with Cachiquita. Again, I think it has to do with the need to get in touch with the ancestral voice. I would put it this way. If I am not in touch with the ancestral voice, (coughs) I have doubts and self-doubts. I have not grounded. I have not grounded in some place of authenticity. I have no authority. And what I do is compensate for my doubts and my sense of insecurity. And the compensations are disastrous. So that's the little pattern. It seems to me that's the pattern. To compensate for it is disaster. So the thing is to make that connection. And what Gacha says to Dante is it's going to be hard. You're going to be exiled. Of course, Dante's writing this after he already has been exiled. Some beautiful passages in here. If you want to be, if you want to say something to the human race that is going to last and mean something you must be an outsider for a while he says all that you held most dear you will put by and leave behind you and this is the arrow the longbow of your exile first let's fly and this is a beautiful tercet you will come to learn how bitter as salt and stone is the bread of others how hard the way that goes up and down stairs that never are your own. You. Living on the move, which is how he lived. So, Kachiguita tells him the unvarnished truth about what it's going to cost. And then he warns him, and I think this is key to the, everything we talked about today. He says, they're going to treat you terribly, but be careful. Don't get caught up in it. Now, Dante did get caught up in it. When he was first exiled, he joined what we would call today the resistance. And uh, the resistance occasionally tried to get back into Florence and, and redress the, the wrongs and so on, and it failed. And it, it, de- it developed these factions within itself, so typical of us human beings. And finally, Dante left it. It was a great turning point in his life. He became the became great artist once he gave up that, that political dialectic. So, Gacchaguita says to him, their bestiality will be made known by what they do while your fame shines the brighter for having become a party of your own. You've got to walk away from it. Become a party of your own. Yeats, in one of his poems, says, Hooray for revolution and more cannon shot. A beggar upon horseback lashes a beggar on foot. Hooray for revolution and cannon come again. The beggars have changed places, but the lash goes on. And that's what Kachiguita is essentially saying. You've got bigger things to do. And then he gives him a little, uh, a more of a tutorial on it. He says, but do not hate your neighbors. Your future stretches far beyond the reach of what they do and far beyond the punishment of wretches. Don't react to it. You have something more important to do. Now, it all has to do with what happens to Dante's voice. He finds, when he gets in touch with the ancestral voice of Cachiguída, that his own voice changes. It's a little bit like second puberty, in the sense that there's another, there's a change of voice. Cachiguída says to him, "If your voice is bitter, when first tested upon the palate, that is," Dante says to Cachiguída, I, I, ha- "I have, I, ha- I will have to say some things that." People that are alive right now are not going to like. This is at the end of Canto 17, Canto 17, verses uh, 130, say. So. Right, and just above there. And Dante says, this. they're not going to like this. And Kachiguita says, for if your voice is bitter when first tested upon the palate, it shall yet become a living nutriment when it is digested. Auden says something like that uh, in one of his poems. He says, Be frank about your heathen foe, for Rome will be a goner if you've soft-pedaled the loud beast. Describe in plain four-letter words this dragon that's upon her. But should our beggars ask the cost, just whistle like the birds. Dare even Pope or Caesar know the price of faith and honor? Say it in four-letter words. has to be said. It's likewise what Caccia Guida says. You have to say it. And Dante understands. He gets the message exactly. But notice what has happened to him in the course of the interview. In, canto, at, in line 116 of Canto 17 and following, Dante says, I have heard much that would, were it retold, offend the taste of many alive today. Yet if, half friend of truth, I mute my rhymes... I am afraid I shall not live for those who will think of these days as the ancient times. That is to say, he has become an ancestor. By getting in touch with the ancestral voice, he has become an ancestor. And he takes on the responsibility for being one for future generations. He is not writing for his contemporaries anymore. He is not living for his contemporaries anymore. So at the very moment that is to say, midway in our life's journey, find myself lost when many go in search of the Fountain of Youth, Dante went on another search, and towards the end of it found the ancestral voice and became an ancestor. Now, this has been compared to Aeneas. Dante compares it to Aeneas. What happens in Book 6 of the Aeneid is Aeneas goes down and has an interview with Anchises. Anchises presents Aeneas within, with what is in many ways an abridged version of the future. He is, after all, trying to fire Aeneas's zeal. And he tries to put the f- best face on it. And Virgil tries to put the best face on it. He dedicated the poem to Caesar Augustus, after all. But there's some things that just didn't wash for Virgil or for Anchises. And so, the book six ends this way. This is the Fitzgerald translation. So raptly, everywhere, father and son wandered the airy plain and viewed it all. After Anchises had conducted him to every region and had fired his love of glory in the years to come, he spoke of wars that he must fight. There are two gates of sleep, one said to be of horn whereby the true shades pass with ease, the other all white ivory a gleam without a flaw, and yet false dreams are sent through this one by the ghost to the upper world. And Cises now, his last instructions given, took his son and Sybil there, and let them go by the ivory gate, the gate of false strength. If you, if you want to know the crisis that Virgil had right in the Aeneid, boy, that tells volumes. In order to, do, in order to carry out the work of founding the great Roman civilization, he had to be told white lies. Oh, man, the depth of that is tremendous. And it's one of those things I think Virgil just knew and had to try not to know to finish the poem. Well, Dante Aeneas had one great advantage over Dante. He had not read the Aeneid. <laughs> Chapter 6. And Dante had The point I wanted to make about this is that Dante does not accept the ivory gate. The uh, he has read the Aeneid and his encounter with the ancestral father produces a change in his voice. He becomes an ancestor. He begins to speak the ancestral voice and he comes away with what the poets have always wanted to come away with, that is to say, his true voice, which is much bigger than his own. And he did not uh, I, I I say the thing about the Fountain of Youth in order to read a few lines of a poem I wrote uh, a few years ago after being very much influenced by the Aeneid. Dante, as you know, uh, uh, Aeneas had a role to play which was uh, historical and uh, uh, geographical and uh, military and political and, Dante's role was poetic and spiritual, uh, which is less palpable in worldly terms. So it was sort of under the influence of both of those that this little poem came to me. And anyway, here's a few of the lines from it. Uh, I mentioned in it, Ponce de Leon, he was the one who searched for the fountain of youth. I imagine Dante being in something like this position. goes like this. The underworld is an inkblot test, an island on the mean Greenwich line, littered with the bones of the Ponce de Leons and all the others who couldn't say yes to one of its meanings and no to the rest of the perfectly good one. It takes half a life to unfold the map to this land where the father's voice is kept. The underworld is an inkblot test a patch of fur on the devil's flank where time can grow so perfectly steep it's as easy to go up as down. And as you say yes to that ultimate choice, you notice a tiny change in your voice. And here we are trying to make some sense out of ten cantos of the Paradiso. And not only that, they are the ten cantos where Dante is uh, most confused, and uh, it is actually the canto's the subject matter of the canto's. I think is his confusion, not confusion so much as his uh, bewilderment at the at the uh, w- bewilderment over the fact that he must, must now change his mode of consciousness in order to proceed higher into the heavenly realm. He loses his orientation. The things that have provided him orientation, mainly, mainly reason and doctrine, uh, become uh, confusions themselves. And uh, he's failed by them. Of course, Dante had a way of taking his confusions and making great poetry out of them. In a way, he, had, uh, he, he, could, uh, he could orchestrate them because he had, as a cultural resource, an orchestra. It also occurred to me this week that part of my task is to transpose it from the musical score that was appropriate to the to the, uh, the instruments that he had to sound and transpose it into a musical score appropriate to the instruments we have to sound. So I, my little imagination was that what I have to do is something comparable to transposing the orchestral Uh, score into something for the tambourine, uh, which would be the uh, musical uh, corollary to our cultural resources. (laughs) In any case, (laughs) really, it's kind of a hand-me-out sort of. Um, Well, anyway, it has to do, I think, with the cloud of unknowing. Dante is entering into what could be thought of as the cloud of unknowing. The author of the cloud of unknowing um, was roughly contemporary with Dante, uh, an English monk, anonymous English monk, by and large. Uh, At the same time, Dante was writing the Divine Comedy. Meister Eckhart was was writing his work and giving his sermons. And uh, many of the medieval mystics were dealing with this question of the cloud of unknowing, the dark night of the soul, the the unlearning of all that one has learned, even when it's been the most appropriate thing to learn at the time. And in the last part of the Paradiso, uh, Dante had paralleled the journey of Aeneas in going into the underworld to consult the the voice of his ancestral father. And for Dante, since the very beginning of the Inferno, the two images for his work have been Aeneas and Paul. And uh, the parallel that's Pauline in this part of the Paradiso is that Paul is struck blind in his conversion and all of his, his elaborate system of orientation, remember Paul was a Pharisee, uh, all of those reference points are demolished and Paul is literally blind and led into Ananias' home where his sight is slowly restored. And he says later in referring to his conversion that he was taken to the third heaven, whether in body or in, or not, he does not know. And Dante, who is being prepared here for the higher reaches of heaven, is going through a Pauline kind of an experience where he is being blinded and all of the props are taken out and he is left in that helpless and bewildered place. So I wanted to start with the best modern commentary on Dante, which is T.S. Eliot. Eliot uh, is a great commentator on the Divine Comedy, not only because he read it uh, and loved it, but because his own poetry was so much influenced by it, particularly his later poetry. And I would like to start today by reading one passage from the Four Quartets and end by reading a couple more. And this one is A summation, I think, of what happens from Canto 18 to Canto 27 in the Paradiso, and this is Eliot from East Coker. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings. I want to finish that sentence, but I just want to call your attention to the beauty of that line. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings. Notice the pun on wing. You know, so the theater and the and the angelic. And the hollow rumble of wings. It gets at that sense of expectation in the changing of the scene, but also a sense of dread, almost ominous. Uh, one... One uh, resists it. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or, when, under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love for the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. This passage concludes with a reference, or uh, all but concludes with a reference to faith open and love. And in the last part of the material we're considering today, Dante undergoes an interrogation about faith open love at the very extremity of his bewilderment. It is only there, the poem seems to be saying, that one can really. Uh, properly assess faith, hope, and love, only after all the other props have been removed. Well, there are many, many times in the text where Dante is told that he simply cannot know and that that part of his mind which wants to know is both valuable for his assent and also useless in the particular way in which he's trying to apply it. So the eagle of the just rulers, and I want to come back and talk about the eagle of just rulers in a minute. But in Canto 19, verses 58 and following, the eagle says to Dante, the understanding granted to mankind is lost in the, as the eye is within the sea. It can make out the bottom near the shore, but not on the main deep. And still it is there, though at a depth your eye cannot explore. So he's being told here as elsewhere, that he simply cannot know, enter into the cloud of unknown. At the heart of the tradition is a mystery and the doctrines of the tradition are meant, they are on the periphery, they are meant to lead to the mystery, but not to substitute for it. It's as though, and it is in part with the doctrines that Dante is going to try to wrestle. Several of the doctrines give him trouble here and he wrestles with them and he's told not to bother. It's as though the doctrines. Uh, I would compare the doctrines to the uh, to those little uh, those little posts that wa- that that marked where the high water came in the last flood. And uh, you drive along the river gorges in California and you see these little posts and they have the little marker up there. Well, that's the doctrines. The doctrines say this is where it came to last time. And uh, foolish is the person who thinks that that little line is somehow the limit of things or. That because that's there, the river is under control, or predictable, or something like that. So Dante is having to make these distinctions between the doctrines and the mystery itself. It's a kind of Alice in Wonderland world where things get curiouser and curiouser, and Dante performs some magnificent feats, not the least of which is this. One of the first issues he faces in dealing with, in, in having his dialogue with this, the, the eagle of the just ruler is the issue of the line which separates uh, the condemned pagans from the saved Christians. Now this is, you must understand by Christian, uh, under Christian Christian understanding, this is a tremendously important line. The best I can do is to say that Dante does, Dante squares the circle on this. Dante... uh, obliterates that distinction without blurring it, which is exactly how it has to be treated. The eagle says to Dante... Dante has this problem. He's he's getting stuck in the particulars of the doctrine. And the eagle says to Dante, For you say, a man is born in sight of Indus water, and there is none there to speak of Christ and none to read or write. And all he wills and does, we must concede, as far as human reason sees, is good. And he does not sin, either in word or deed. He dies unbaptized and cannot receive the saving faith. What justice is it damns him? Is it his fault that he does not believe? Now, the, the, the eagle of just rulers has put the case in a pretty strong way. That's a pretty good presentation of the case against the justice. See, Dante has said to himself, if I ever get there, I'm going to ask him about this. <laughs> and here he is facing the, the manifestation of justice. And so his questioning mind presents that issue. How could that be just? And the, the eagle, just to show that he under, understands it, presents it in a very strong case. And then he says, But who are you to take the judgment seat and pass on things a thousand miles away who cannot see the ground before your feet? is a way of saying, he doesn't say that Dante's question is inappropriate, he just rules it out of order. The issue is to be on the path, and to begin to speculate on some abstract manifestation of the doctrine of exclusivity is to wander off the path. One of the marvels here is is that Dante... Affirms both the exclusive and inclusive uh, dimensions of, of the Christian dispensation. The exclusive role of Christ is essential for one who is on the Christian path. To interrupt the journey on that path in order to speculate on how that exclusivity might play out in reference to somebody who's on another path is ridiculous. That's what the eagle is telling you. It's just don't bother. Stay on the path. The exclusivity in the Christian tradition and in other traditions, in, manifested in different ways, is an absolutely essential part of the religious life. And mature ecumenism will have to come to grips with that. I think uh, the idea that all roads will get you there uh, is a very dangerous idea, uh, it, unless it's dealt with a little more uh, in, in a little more sophisticated way. The exclusive dimension of each religious tradition is very important. It's a little bit like, I think, our culture has decided, and some may quibble with it, our culture has decided that it's better to have one spouse than several. We may not live up to this very well, but this is how we've decided it. Our culture has decided that it's better to say, till death do us part, than to say... Till one of us gets out of medical school, or till the kids leave home. See, that is to say, we have decided that some kind of exclusive commitment is an important part of life and the meaning of life. And so Dante is, has gotten off on this abstract question of how this might affect an, somebody in India, and forgotten how it has to affect has has to affect him. Eagle of a Just ruler says to Dante, forget that question. And then he goes on to not blow the line, but demolish it. He says, to this high emperor, none ever rose but through belief in Christ, either before or after his agony. And that already is a conundrum. How could somebody believe in Christ before he lived? Then he goes on to say, but see how many now cry out, Christ, Christ, who shall be farther from him at the judgment than many who on earth do not know Christ. Such Christians shall the Ethiopians scorn when the two bands are formed to right and left, one blessed to all eternity, one forlorn. And then the chief souls in the eagle's eyes, the, the eagle is a composite of all the souls of the just rulers, and the most prominent ones form the eye of the eagle, and there are six, and two of the six are pagans. And the... And uh, the eagle says to Dante, Who would believe in the erring world down there that Ripheus the Trojan would be sixth among the sacred lustres of the sphere? And the other is Trajan, the Roman emperor. Goes on to say a few lines later, You marvel at the first and fifth gem here on my brow, finding this realm of angels and gift of Christ made beautiful by them. Now this these lines are being written at about the same time that Meister Eckhart in Germany was writing things like this. In eternity there is no before and after. Therefore what happened a thousand years ago and what happened a thousand what will happen a thousand years from now and what is now happening is one in eternity. Those are they're two parts of the same insight. Well this is the, this is simply not acceptable to the rational mind. It has to be one way or another. And Dante shows how he's still hanging on to the rational mind in a way because th- that kind of collapsibility of time per- immediately presents an issue to the rational mind and the issue is formulated doctrinally as predestination. See, Predestination. So Dante gets onto this predestination as he chews on it like a bone. He can't let go of it. In light of what he's just been told, he starts to fuss around with it. And the eagle says to him, predestination... Oh, how deep your source is rooted past the reach of every vision that cannot plumb the whole of the first cause. Mortals be slow to judge. Not even we who look on God in heaven know as yet how many he will choose for ecstasy and sweet it is to lack this knowledge still. We don't... It is is the cloud of unknowing. One must simply not try to know what cannot be known. There is a limit to the human capacity to know and Dante has come right up against that limit and he's in the face of that limit he's raising all these abstract questions and he's being told to simply put them at rest to put to lay the questions down the eagle itself represents another conundrum and I like to explore this a little bit Um, we are told right away in Canto 19 verses uh, 10 to 12, something strange about this eagle, strange for Dante. Dante says, For I saw and heard the beak move and declare in its own voice the pronouns I and mine when we and ours were what conceived it there. That is to say, these. this is a collection of the souls of the just rulers. It appears that they ha- they have lost their identity in singularity they speak as with one voice and one way to those of us who are raised on the idea of the constant tension between the individual and the collective would regard this as a loss of personality a loss of individual distinction that it is like a great mob chanting the same word somehow this is strange it's strange for dante they're all talking with one voice Perhaps a sense that something's been lost here, some unique personality has been lost. Towards the middle of Canto twenty, still Dante the, the, the eagle has ended a discourse, and the eagle says to Dante, excuse me, Dante says, of the eagle, as it ends this discourse and and streaks off, like a lark, this is line seventy-three of Canto twenty, like a lark that soars in rapture to the sky, first singing and then silent, satisfied by the last sweetness of its soul's own cry. Such seemed that seal of the eternal bliss that stamped it there. The first will, at whose will, whatever is, becomes just what it is. Now, this is central to Dante's theology. Isn't that wonderful? Now, there's two elements of this. The first tercet, has to do with the lark that soars in rapture to the sky for singing and then silence satisfied by the last sweetness of its soul's own cry. That's as close to getting silence and sound to overlap as you can do. It is a little bit like this bell we ring here sometimes, you know, which does that. the overlapping of silence and sound. Wallace Stevens, one wonders whether Wallace Stevens had this part of the poem in mind when he wrote his. He wrote a passage in the poem that goes like this. I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling or just after. Well, that is an image for what's happening here. Dante is... Is going is crossing that that mysterious little threshold between the articulate and the inarticulate, the that which can be articulated and the ineffable, and he's depicted it here. And right after that, the next tercet affirms the fundamental experience of Dante, religiously speaking, which is that the will of God. To attune oneself to the will of God is to become who you really are. Even though the attuning of one's will to another will seems like the act of one who is losing his uniqueness. In fact, it is the one who is becoming unique. And so it begins to resolve this first confusion Dante had about how it is they're all talking with one voice and how strange that is, instead of being unique and particular and, and personal and all the rest of it. Well, which one is it? Uh, do I lose my identity or gain my identity? Does the, is, this, is this eagle the representat- representation of a loss of identity or, a, or the essence of identity? I want to explore it further, but I'll stop right here just to quote Martin Buber, what Martin Buber says about these sorts of things. I cannot try to escape the paradox that has to be lived by assigning the irreconcilable propositions to two separate realms of validity nor can it nor can i be helped to an ideal reconciliation by any theological device i like that term theological device because it is easy to use a theological device as a kind of buffer for the to to keep from, from keep one from having to live that dilemma nor can i be helped by any to any ideal reconciliation by any theological device but I am compelled to take both to myself, and be lived to be lived together, and in being lived, they are one. It is the loss of a kind of identity and the gaining of an essential identity. It involves both of those things. I wanted to raise that issue because it highlights, in some way that I cannot, I cannot uh, rationally explain. But I think it highlights the issue that I, that I want to investigate as more or less as an aside to the, to the poem for a second. It's not an aside. But I want finally to come to the question of justice. This is Dante. Dante is haunted, as you know, by the question of justice. Dante, uh, throughout his life and throughout the Divine Comedy and in De Monarchia and in other writings of his, was, was tremendously concerned about the issue of justice. This is the last chance he is going to have to get ultimate commentary on justice from the the souls of the just ruler. So I want to come to the question of justice, but before we get to it, in order to see it in, a, I think, a deeper way, I'd like to pause at something that happens at the end of Canto 18 and reinterpret it for our time. It, it relates to, but I don't have time to try to explore all the interconnections. I think it relates to this issue of losing and gaining identity. Uh, but in any case, in line 127 of Canto 18, the text says, "...in earlier eras, wars were carried on by swords. Now, by denying this man or that, the bread the Heavenly Father denies to none." This is a reference to the church using excommunication as a political weapon. It's a sort of theological ver- version of uh, f- uh, you know f- the politics of food. Uh, that the church could excommunicate, that is to say, de- deny the heavenly bread and allow keep one from receiving the Eucharist and the other sacraments. As a way, it was the threat of excommunication that was used by the church to maintain the order from which it so profited. This is how Dante has seen it. So that the social and not to mention salvific consequences of excommunication uh, were enough to make it a potent weapon in maintaining the established order for the benefit of those who were profiting from it. Now, the question is, is there contemporary... Uh, version of that I'd like to suggest one just to stimulate us for a minute it might be that our culture uses the excommunicants as excommunicants to keep its system going an excommunicant is one who is cut off from from a real and felt sense of communion with everybody else. Uh, Lost in the lonely crowd kind of experience. If Dante's criticizing his culture or an element within his culture for using excommunication to maintain the social order, it might be that it is the excommunicants in our social order that keep it going. Excommunicants service the socioeconomic machinery better than someone who is in genuine communion, you see. They buy more toasters and they consult more lawyers and psychotherapists and they buy more cars and wreck more of them and etc etc etc. That that it is as excommunicants, psychologically speaking, that we service. The system. And the system, uh, in, a, in a sense, services the excommunicants without satisfying their need. Well, I, that seems like a uh, an arbitrary aside. It is an arbitrary aside. But I wanted to raise it so we could then go back and look at this question of justice in a deeper way. Or at least what strikes me as a deeper way. Dante has said in several places, in one place he says, in the Paradiso, he interviews one of the, some of the souls in paradise and one of them says to him, speaking of God, he says, in his will is our peace. And the souls of the just rulers say to him, it is in concert with that will that we each become exactly who we are. Now this is justice. Justice would be if everyone could become exactly who he or she is. That would. See, and so that would be justice, would be a system which allowed every person to become really who they are. And an unjust system would be one which discouraged or prevented that from happening. Now, how does one become who one really is? Dante says, by attuning one's will to the will of God. Eckhart said we should never rest until we become what we have eternally been in Christ. To become just who we really are. So I would like to go to, strangely enough, to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. This is the Pauline portion of the Dante's journey here for a second. And the the whole question of des- predestination which arose comes from, I think, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a scholar on this by any means, but I think As far as I know, it comes from the letter to the Romans, this passage. And I want to read this passage and then comment on it and let us think about justice. Um, You have to remember now Paul's experience. He spent a lifetime trying to justify himself. That was a great issue for the Pharisees to become righteous uh, and to follow all the rules. And if you followed every one of the rules, unfortunately the rules kept proliferating. But if you followed every one of the rules, absolutely to the T, to the rubric, you would be clean. You would be a purified one, which is what Pharisee meant. Well, then he got knocked off his horse in more ways than one. And he had another experience. And it's I think he's writing from that experience here in the 8th chapter letter to Romans. He says, We know that by turning everything to their good, God cooperates with all those who love him with all those he has called according to his purpose. They are the ones he chose specifically long ago and intended to become true images of his son so that his son might be the eldest of many brothers. Called long ago. See, that's where it starts. He called those he intended for this. Those he called he justified. And with those he justified he shared his glory. Now, in the Pauline idiom, what's being said here is that the whole question of justifying one's life was suddenly dispensed with. And that was the liberation which allowed one then to attune one's life to the will of God. And that was a total revolution for for Paul. So that it's almost as though you see here's if I don't attune my will to the to God's will, I don't become who I am, I become something else, maybe who I think I am or who somebody else thinks I am or who I think I'd like to be, or you know some but I don't become who I am, and if I don't attune myself to the will of God, I don't feel right I feel somehow not right and so I then try to get right in some way and I launch onto one of the myriad of self-justification projects in order to make myself right and life as you know is this elaborate array of self-justification projects and it's as though God looks down and he sees all these poor, benighted souls involved feverishly involved in their self-justification project. And he says, well, I just got, I have to have, I'd have to have a few of these characters cooperate with me. So he goes down, says Paul, so to speak, and just touches a couple of them and just justifies them, just gets it out of the way. Bango, you're justified. That's it. Now, you can attune your will to the will of God and become who you really are. It gets the question of self justification out of the way. So, what's justice? Justice in the social order would be a. Let's put it this way. What's injustice? Injustice would be in the social order those things which discourage or prevent me from attuning my will to the will of God and therefore becoming who I really am and thereby condemned me to a life of self justification. That's injustice. At the deepest level, or at the deepest level I can see, I guess it goes deeper. Dante says it keeps going deeper. You can just see however you can see. It seems to me this what the text is saying, is that that is the deepest level of injustice. In Canto 21, Dante enters the realm of the contemplatives, and this is the realm of Saturn. And what he what he uh, the vision he has there is of the ladder, Jacob's ladder, which Was in medieval times the symbol for the work of the contemplative life, namely to reconnect the two realms that had been disconnected, uh, to reconnect in one's own living experience the uh, heaven and earth. And uh, things get uh, somewhat sober here. Beatrice stops smiling. The music is turned off, and Dante is told that the reason for that is that he would be uh, he he is not capable of seeing Beatrice's smile as radiant as it would be were it to be flashed in this particular realm of Paradiso. Nor could he withstand the music if he were to hear it. So he has those turned off for a while. But he still has this lingering, it's almost comic, he still has this lingering thing about predestination. He he heard about how it is that some souls got chosen before Christ was born to be redeemed by Christ, and he hadn't figured it out. And he still is holding out hope of being able to do so. And so he meets the soul. It's, it's Peter Damiano. And he says to him, Why among all these blisses with whom you dwell were you alone predestined to this office? And Damiano, Damiano does a little ecstatic twirl uh, and says to Dante the following. This is line, line 94 of Canto 21. The truth of this is hidden so far down in the abysses of the eternal law it is cut off from all created vision. Report what I have said when you are back in the mortal world that no man may presume to move his feet down so profound a track. On earth, the mind is smoke, here it is fire. Oh, what a lie. On earth, the mind is smoke, here it is fire. When it starts to smoke, we know it's going out. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the next part of it? <laughs> He goes on to say, "How can it do there what it cannot do even when taken into heaven's choir?" Well, that's the thing to remember. At the, when one throws oneself up against one of these great conundrums, uh, and it threatens to take one off the path—that's what these things do. Uh, they have a they're serviceable when one is on the path, but then when one looks up and then begins to speculate about how they may play out in some other context, you can get off the path. And at that point, one needs to hear, on earth the mind is smoke, here it is fire. And here's what Charles Williams says about that line. Dante is not told, he cannot be, but if poetry cannot do that, it can make the helpless answer an answer of such a kind that the helplessness opens into the depth of the whole. The lines do what so much theology does not do. They cause us almost to experience the reason that we cannot know. Dante says, I left that question, his own words having thus prescribed me from it, and so limited was content to ask him humbly who he was. Now that's that marks the transformation for Dante. He is, by and large, going to let some of these doctrinal abstractions recede, and now what's going to come into the foreground is people and their faces. And he asks Peter Damiano who he is, and he finds out about. Him. Of course, he's been doing this throughout the Divine Comedy, uh, but in this, he, this is a—he drops the question and humbly asks who he is. And he is now going to undergo another crisis with regard to these faces that he's going to meet. He's going to meet Damiano's face, St. Benedict's face, Beatrice's face, and Christ's face. And in each case, he's going to be confounded. He's preparing, you see, for the face of God. And he's having to, in a sense, realize that in each of these faces... Uh, the, as Buber says of the I Thou, the the re, the I Thou relationship is manifested but not con, but not consummated, and he goes from face to face to face, looking for the fa- preparing himself for the face of God. Face is ever more glorious. So he meets ben, uh, Benedict in the next canto, and he wants to see his face unveiled. He's now interested in faces. He's less interested in doctrines, now interested in faces. He says, I therefore beg you, Father, can I rise to such a height of grace that I may see your unveiled image with my mortal eyes? It's line 58, I believe, of Canto 22. And St. Benedict says, when you get to the upper regions of heaven, the Empyrean, the the last uh, reach of paradise, you can see my face and and other similarly glorious faces unveiled, but not until then. He says, there, meaning the Empyrean, every wish is perfect, ripe, and whole, for there and there alone is every part where it has always been, for it has no pole, not being in space. And I want to dwell for a minute on this. On, on what it means that in the upper reaches of paradise, there is no polarity, and it is only in conditions where there is no polarity, it is only when the mind has accustomed itself to a place of non-duality, that it can, that it can, uh, that it can um, encounter the beatific vision without being destroyed. The beatific vision encountered by the by the Mind limited to a dualistic uh, set of apperceptions is a crippling experience. And Benedict says you cannot see this until you reach that place where the mind is no longer habitually limited to the dualistic way of being. Here's how Louis Biancoli translates these lines. This is Benedict speaking. Your lofty wish, brother, will be fulfilled in that ultimate sphere where mine and all the others are fulfilled. In that sphere, every desire is complete, mature, and perfect. In that sphere alone is every part where it has always been, for it has no location and no poles. And our ladder rises all the way to it, which is why it has escaped your vision. And then Benedict complains because the church has forgotten to send people up that ladder. Namely, it has forgotten its mystical obligation. It has forgotten, it has become too involved, and this was Dante's critique of it, too involved in the political uh, world, in the in the everyday workaday world scene, and it has not encouraged people to make that mystical ladder their preoccupation. So but what uh, the Biancoli translation emphasizes, in that sphere alone is every part where it has always been. In other words, it, when we get there, it's not as though, when we get there, we turn around and see what's in the dualistic world for what it really is, namely, a little shadow play, namely, a great big melodrama based on an illusion, Dante gets up the ladder, and this is a commentary on his life in a way, he gets up the ladder by looking at Beatrice and having her wink at him. Well, I don't know if it's a wink. It could be a wave, it could be a nod. It's what he call, what he says, a simple sign. The word in, Italio, in Italian, un so senno, c-e-n-n-o, it means a sign, like a little wave, a little wink, a little gesture. Mm-hmm. He gets a little gesture from Beatrice and he travels all the way up the ladder. And this has been his experience. And and those who have not had that experience can simply congratulate him for having had it. It goes all the way back to when he was a young man in Florence and walked down the street one day and passed Beatrice and she looked at him and said, Hello? And it gave him a soul. Or when he was nine years old and he saw her at a party with a red dress on. And he never got over it. All the way through his life, it was when he, when he contemplated Beatrice that his soul was elevated. And so there he is. He goes all the way to the top of the ladder. Now, he's just been told that when he gets to the upper reaches of heaven, there, he will be at a place where there, is, there are no poles. He will be beyond the polarities. And then he can see the glory. And that's wonderful. And when he gets there, what does he arrive at? Guess what? The constellation Gemini.